So some of you, I'm sure most of us have a movie that if we find it on TV, we're going to watch to the very end of the movie, no matter what else is going on. Well, I have a lot of those, and the Mission Impossible movies are definitely on that list. I love the Mission Impossible movies, and unpopular opinion, perhaps, but I think Tom Cruise is great. In fact, I love a lot of Tom Cruise movies. I love his Mission Impossible movies. I love Top Gun. I mean, who doesn't love Top Gun, especially in San Antonio, right? Some of you pilots think you're too Top Gun already, right? I love a minority report. I love a lot of his movies. Men tend to gravitate towards those movies, but there's another Tom Cruise movie that women tend to gravitate towards, Jerry Maguire. Now, Jerry Maguire is about Tom Cruise as a sports agent who falls in love, and my favorite scene in Jerry Maguire is... Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character, the wide receiver, when he says, anybody know? Show me the money, baby. Show me the money. That's my favorite scene. But often other people's favorite scene is when Jerry comes into his significant other's home towards the end of the movie and says to her, you complete me. It gets a little dusty in the room every time that happens. A little misty in the eyes. You complete me. Uh, Jerry had us at hello, right, with that one. And uh, that's one of the great lines in that movie. And one of the reasons I think that line is so great and interesting is because it points to something that's deeply true of each one of us. And that is, we were not designed to live life alone. Man was designed to be in community. And one particular form of community is more significant than any other, and that is the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And that's what we see today as we continue this series called Beginnings in Genesis 1 through 11. We've seen that these early chapters in the Bible deal with foundational issues. We've seen who God is. We see what our purpose is. And indeed, the purpose of the entire universe, we see where things come from, we see where things are going. And last time we saw that Adam, the first man, was placed in the garden, and he entered into this relationship with God called a covenant, and God gave to man a calling and responsibilities, and he called man to see him as the sovereign king so that he might enter into eternal life. And this morning, we finish out Genesis 2 by looking at another foundational part of the Bible. We see the way God addresses man's original loneliness. And he does that by forming woman, by forming Eve, and by instituting marriage. So here's how I want to summarize the main idea this morning as we look at the very end of Genesis 2, 2, 18 through 25. Here's the big point. God intends marriage to be an answer for loneliness and a picture of the gospel. That's why marriage exists. It's an answer to loneliness, and it's a picture of the gospel, okay? So as we work through these verses, let's break it into three sections. First, the problem of loneliness. Second, the creation of a companion. And then third, the first wedding. So there's your outline. Here we go. The, the problem of loneliness is what we see in verses 18 through 20. Something striking is said there in verse 18. And careful readers of Genesis will notice it. We read, the Lord God said, it is not good. Everything thus far in the story of the Bible has been good according to God. God repeatedly in Genesis 1 declares everything that he made good until we get to chapter 2, verse 18. It's not good that man should be alone. Now, there's no sin in the world yet. Evil has not yet entered into the picture. 
Man is in full communion with God. They walk and they talk together in the garden. But still, there is something lacking. There's something lacking in God's eyes. God is the one who says this isn't good. And the thing that's lacking is that man does not have a companion. Man is alone. Now, of course, he's not all by himself. The world is full of creatures of all types. And we see in verses 19 and 20 that the man exercises dominion in Eden by naming all of the animals. And you can imagine Adam standing side by side with God himself as God brings a representative of every animal. I guess they're starting with what? The aardvark and going all the way through to zebra, A to Z, so that Adam can name them. But none of these other created beings is fit to be Adam's companion, Adam's helper. That's why the problem is repeated there at the end of verse 20. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Part of what we see here, part of what we see here is that every single human is designed to live in the matrix of community. We all desperately long for a relationship, for companionship. Tom Hanks was in a movie a couple of years ago called Castaway. I'm sure many of you have seen that movie. It's about uh, Tom Hanks uh, having a plane crash and landing on this deserted island in the middle of the ocean with no one else around. And it's about his experience there by himself and his attempt to build a raft to get off the island. And you might remember the best character in Castaway is not Tom Hanks. It's Wilson. Who's Tom Hanks' best friend? Wilson is his best friend, and Wilson is a volleyball. He's a volleyball with a a human face painted on it. And for me, the most harrowing scene of that entire movie is when they are on the raft, finally escaping the island, and Wilson falls off. And Tom Hanks dives into the ocean after him, screaming, Wilson, Wilson, possibly, you know, spoiling the entire operation. It's a powerful scene in a powerful movie that communicates the intrinsic human need for companionship. Even Wilson is not a fit, though. For Hanks' character in that movie, just like Adam did not have a fit for him in Genesis 2, because all of us need are equal. We need someone else made in God's image, someone fit for us, someone like us. And you know, we've seen in Genesis that everything that God makes has a function and a purpose. The sky is filled with birds. The seas are filled with fish. The heavens are filled with the stars and the sun and the moon. The land is filled with beasts. Everything is functioning properly, but Adam does not have a functional equivalent. Adam is alone, and that means that he's not fully functional, so to speak. And God knows this. God knows this because God himself is inherently relational. That's one implication of what Christians call the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity tells us that within his own eternal being, God exists in a perfect, harmonious relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God exists in communion, in relationship, in friendship within his own being. And he made us, as we've seen, in his image. And so to fully reflect God's image, we need relationship. We need community. 
We were created to be connected to other humans, not to be isolated from other humans. So loneliness was a problem even before the fall. Now, if that's true, think about what a problem loneliness is now in a world ravaged and wrecked by sin. Wilco is a band that some of you might have heard. They have a song called How to Fight Loneliness. And in that song, they have a couple of lines that I find really helpful. They say, how to fight loneliness, smile all the time, shine your teeth to meaningless, sharpen them with lies, laugh at every joke, drag your blanket blindly, fill your heart with smoke, and the first thing that you want will be the last thing you'll ever need. That's how you fight it. I read this week an article in The Guardian, a newspaper published in London, about the loneliness epidemic in the Western world. And this article said that in 2015, the UK even appointed a minister of loneliness. A minister of loneliness. Now, you people don't say the government shouldn't be getting... Settle down. Settle down. Okay. It's just an illustration. A minister of loneliness named uh, Tracy Crouch to help fight the loneliness epidemic. And the article writes about the elderly people in nursing homes around Britain who are desperately lonely. But then it goes on to say this. Listen to this quote. Even surrounded by family and friends, though, we can still experience loneliness. It's not necessarily physical presence that counts, but an actual psychological sense of connection, a sense of being understood and attended to, and the ability and opportunity to sense, or, uh, the opportunity to reciprocate, excuse me. Being lonely in a crowd can be particularly perplexing and distressing especially when we look around and see other people apparently enjoying healthy levels of social connectedness. One of the questions that the scripture is asking you to consider this morning in your own life is how do you fight loneliness? How do you feel about loneliness? What do you do when you feel lonely? Because I would imagine that most of us have experienced that. All of us from time to time wrestle with loneliness, with a sense of being isolated, with a sense of thinking that no one understands us. People, even in our own house, might not understand us. Like, no one cares. One of the things that Genesis chapter 2 is doing is emphatically telling us through the story that God sees us in our loneliness and God cares. God moved towards us. He moves towards us to provide, to give us companionship, And that's for you to believe this morning. And we see how God does that next. So let me show you that second, the creation of a companion. We saw the problem of loneliness. And in verse 21 through 23, the creation of a companion. God performs another miracle of creation. He made Adam, verse 7, from the dust of the ground. And he makes Eve from the side of Adam, verse 22. He puts Adam into a deep sleep. And he creates the woman, Eve, from the rib or the side of Adam. And the entire point, here's what you need to get. The entire point of the creation narrative of the woman here is that she is like Adam. She is his equal, his partner. They're alike in a way that no other two creatures are alike. Now, of course, men and women are different as well, but the first thing that the scripture calls us to recognize is that they are more similar than different. You know, men may be from Mars and women may be from Venus, whatever, but men and women are more alike than any other two creatures in God's world. 
And the passage gives us a number of ways to see that. First, look at what Adam says in verse 23. This at last, finally, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, that means very clearly that he sees Eve as something like him. He's affirming a family tie here, a bond that the man and the woman share that no other creatures share with them. That's also, by the way, why Adam says she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, in Hebrew, that's a play on words. And it kind of works in English because woman and man sound somewhat alike, some of the same letters. But in Hebrew, those two words sound very, very similar. So the very fact that woman is called woman by Adam implies that he sees them as similar, as alike. He names her based on their correspondence with one another. You also see that in the fact that she's taken from the rib. By the way, a better translation is side. She's taken from the side of Adam. Now that probably, that literally happened. Okay, that that is a true telling of history. But it's also symbolic. It's symbolic of their similarity, of Adam and Eve's equivalence. It's as if the author of Genesis is saying, Eve is Adam's alter ego. She's literally his better half, right? So they are on equal footing. They are side by side. I love what the old commentator Matthew Henry writes about this verse. Listen to what he says. God did not make the woman out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So we see they're equal in the things Adam says about her and the fact that she's made from his side. And finally, we see their alikeness or their fitness for each other in the use of that word helper. Helper. Verse 21, or excuse me, verse 20 uses it. And that word helper is used 21 times in the Old Testament. 21 times. And in 15 of those 21 uses, the word helper refers to God. It refers to God. God is the helper of Israel, for example. So when it's called, when Eve is called Adam's helper here, that does not mean that Eve is subordinate or inferior to Adam. It doesn't mean that Eve is made or created to work at Adam's pleasure and do whatever he says. The word actually implies the exact opposite. Well, not the exact opposite, but something different. It implies that Eve completes Adam. And Adam completes Eve to go full Jerry Maguire on you again. Adam is saying, basically, you complete me. It means that the man and the woman complement each other. By the way, theologically, that's why we refer to ourselves as complementarians when we think about the roles of men and women in the church and in the house. We complement each other. We're not exactly alike, and there are different roles and functions in a marriage, but Adam and Eve and men and women are made to complete each other, to complement each other, to cure loneliness. God creates Eve for the purpose of companionship and friendship and deep, vibrant, spiritual, emotional, and physical partnership with Adam. Okay, let me say two things by way of application about this point. Okay, first, for those of you who are looking to get married someday, uh, this text informs what we are to be looking for in a potential spouse. Okay? Uh, 
When you're looking for a prospective spouse or thinking about the kind of person you want to marry, historically, people in our culture base that on two possible things. Either we look for someone with whom we have romantic, physical, sexual chemistry, or we look for someone whose social status either matches ours or is above of ours. Basically, someone who can give us the kind of life that we desire. Now, here is why that is really problematic. Neither of those things is durable. Physical attractiveness is going to wane, no matter how hard we try to prevent it. And socioeconomic status can change overnight. So when people think that they have found compatibility based on those things, they often make the painful discovery that they have built their relationship on sand. The common purpose and commitment of your marriage should flow from a dedicated and close friendship. From companionship. Not primarily from attractiveness or potential social status or common interests. Not to say those things don't matter at all. Those things do matter. But if you base the compatibility of your relationship on those things, it is tenuous. What you should you be looking for is someone that will be your best friend. That you can share the rest of your life with that will be your companion. Second piece of application. If you're a single person... If you're a single person, I know this might be a troubling, discouraging, maybe even irrelevant passage for you. If it's not good for man to be alone, is an extended season of singleness wrong or sinful even? Short answer, no. No. In fact, the Bible elsewhere sanctifies and affirms singleness. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 through 35 or so, basically says that singleness is holy and good because it, it gives one an opportunity to be undivided in his or her attention to and affection for the Lord. So, for example, when I was single, before Marianne and I got married, I did uh, some college ministry for a couple of summers at a local church. And I would regularly, in that college ministry, get calls at 10 o'clock at night to go play basketball. I'm like, let's do this, baby. I love basketball. 10 o'clock, I'm good. Let's have some coffee beforehand, right? That's something I could do because I was undivided in my devotion for ministry. Now, let me just tell you this, as your loving pastor, if you call me at 10 o'clock to go play basketball or to do anything else... <laughs> I ain't going to answer, probably, because I'm in bed, typically, at 10 o'clock, because I have a wife and kids and a million things to give my time and attention to. I'm divided, to use the language that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7. Singleness affords you the opportunity to be undivided. Now, listen, that's a good thing, but I know a lot of you, if you're single, are thinking, I don't want to be undivided. I would love to be divided, actually. Thank you, Luke for telling me that I could serve the Lord all the time instead of just when my wife allows me to or my husband allows me to. I get that. I really do. I think I, want, I, I, think I get that. Okay? I want you to rest in the fact that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians has resonance and truth, but I just also want you to hear me say, I know you might not want to be single. I know you don't. 
I know you might desire marriage. And I want you to know that we love you as a church. We want to encourage you, support you, and care well for you in that. And I know it's hard for singles to be in a church where the vast majority of people are married and have seemingly like 14 kids each, right? I know that's hard. I know it's hard. We love you. And can I just tell you this too? Don't settle. Wait on a man or a woman that blows you away and that loves Jesus fiercely. We love you. We care about you. I know that these are hard passages. And I'd encourage you to reflect on 1 Corinthians 7 and care that know that we care for you and we see you. Okay, so there's a problem of loneliness. There's the creation of a companion. And then the last thing you need to see in these verses is the first wedding. So Adam in verse 23 says, this at last, whoa, whoa, this at last is a woman. That's what I've been looking for. She is like me. She compliments me. And then in verse 24, we see the narrator under the inspiration of the spirit. So really God add sort of a universal comment about marriage. Verse 24, look at what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So that verse is like the Magna Carta for marriage. And real quickly, I want to say a few things about it before we finish. So first, this verse tells us that marriage is intended for permanence. It's intended for permanence. It's the creation of a new and permanent family. That's the point of that phrase, man shall leave his father and cleave or hold fast to or cling to his wife. So marriage is a companionship, but it's not just a companionship. It is a committed companionship. It could be called and is often called a covenant. And very contrary to what our culture currently thinks, the willingness to commit does not lessen the affection. Rather, the willingness to commit to someone The willingness to enter into a binding relationship with someone, far from stifling love, is intended to enhance love. It's intended to supercharge love. Pixar did a movie a couple years ago called Inside Out. And it's great, just a brilliant, brilliant movie about this young girl. And really, it's about the emotions in her mind that, she's, that have been personified. So there's anger and there's all these different emotions. Great movie. And one scene in this uh, movie shows her emotions going through kind of her subconscious. <laughs> and they're uncovering her dreams, which have all been personified. And there's this boy that she has dreamed about repeatedly. I guess he's like the most popular boy in her school. And the boy says one thing repeatedly in her dreams. I would die for you, Riley. 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 It's, it's kind of a funny scene in the movie because it shows sort of what 12-year-olds and, let's be honest, 42-year-olds dream about. And uh, the thing I love about that is it shows that real love instinctively desires to say those sorts of radical things that demonstrate commitment and demonstrate permanence. You know, the Bible does that too. The great love song of the Bible, Song of Solomon. In Song of Solomon 8, we read this. This is what 
the lover is saying to his betrothed. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its ardor as unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. So the point, again, is that the permanence of this relationship doesn't stifle the romance. It enhances the romance because love yearns for commitment. Marriage was designed to be permanent. Second, marriage is intended for open intimacy. That's what verse 25 is about. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, when I perform weddings, I always talk about this verse. I love this verse because it's one of the great joys of marriage to be fully known and to know someone in a way that no one else knows that person. That's what this verse means, to have no facades or masks, to be completely open and vulnerable with another human. It's a beautiful and glorious intent in marriage. It's permanent, it's intimate, and then lastly, marriage is a picture. It's a picture of, and it's a project for the gospel to change our lives. What do I mean by that? Listen, the gospel tells us that God, through Jesus Christ, entered into a committed and intimate relationship with us, his bride. It tells us that Jesus commits himself to us. And guess what? This is why the gospel is good. Jesus stays committed to us even when we fail him. Jesus stays committed to us when we want to turn away and run. Jesus doesn't just stay committed. Jesus lays down his own life for his bride so that she we might have life. And marriage is a companionship where two people are committed to dying to their own self every day in countless ways for the sake of and for the good of the other. Each partner sacrifices his or her own rights and privileges for the good of the other. That's the nature of the committed companionship because It's an exact replica or image of the gospel. So marriage is a picture of the gospel, but marriage is also the best way that the gospel actually works its way out in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. How does that work? Here's how. More than anywhere else in your life, marriage is going to show you how bad you are. Amen? Can we go Southern Baptist for a minute? Someone give me an amen. Amen. Marriage shows you how bad you are. You can't hide, at least for long. In a marriage, your own desperate selfishness is soon to be revealed. And guess what? It's going to be repeatedly (laughs) revealed the longer the marriage continues. It shows you how much you're fixed on your own glory, how much you center your lives around what you want. The only thing that can really reveal that to you is when you have to give your life away every day to someone else. You don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Marriage shows you that you're desperately, desperately needy for someone to dispense to you great grace. It shows you how bad you are, but it also shows you how loved you are. It shows you the love of God because the person who knows you the best in a healthy marriage still loves you the best. No human relationship approximates so well for us God's love in Jesus 
those times when your spouse drives you crazy. Those times when your spouse angers you. When they spit venom at you. Those are the times, friends, when you and I are being reminded more deeply than any other time of the gospel. We anger Jesus. We drive Jesus crazy. And we're still more deeply loved by him than we can possibly imagine. We spat venom at Jesus and killed Jesus for crying out loud. And he still sacrificed and gave himself for us. And when you see that Jesus did that for you through the picture of your marriage, you can begin through the power of the gospel to do it better for others, especially your spouse. And when you see a spouse do that for you in your worst moments, you can again worship the God who has done that for you. So marriage shows you that you're actually a lot worse than you think you are, as we like to say here at Christ Church. But you're more loved than you ever thought possible. So God knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing in marriage. He was providing a cure for loneliness. And he was teaching us about his own love for us in Jesus, which is everlasting and unfailing, and which will chase you down even when you try to run away. Let's pray.